This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. This was a very busy spring session for the Supreme Court with rulings that will be making an impact in a variety of areas. You had also had the recent announcement that Justice Anthony Kennedy was going to be retiring, which will mean a busy summer as the White House looks to get the ninth justice confirmed sometime later this year. A lot to discuss where the Supreme Court is concerned. We are joined here in studio by Ted Ruger, who's professor of law and dean of the law school here at the University of Pennsylvania. And joining us on the phone, Randy Beck, who's chair in constitutional law at the University of Georgia's law school, who, by the way, also previously clerked for Justice Kennedy. Ted, great seeing you again. Happy summer to you. <laughs> uh, you, you as well. Good to be here. Thank you, Randy. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Thank you. So I'll start with you, Randy, with the retirement of Justice Kennedy. Give us your thoughts on his retirement. So uh, when people in Washington say that they are stepping down to spend more time with family, sometimes we're suspicious of that. In his case, I think it's likely true. He has children and grandchildren and probably just wanted to to take a step away from the court. He's been there 30 years and spend more time with his family. So what is his legacy then in your mind? So he has been uh, a swing justice for uh, much of his 30 years on the court. Uh, Jack Goldsmith at Harvard Law School was one of my co-clerks, and he has a piece out talking about how Justice Kennedy in his 31 terms on the court uh, was uh, the uh, tied for or the, the most common justice in five foreign majority opinions on 20 of those 31 years. So uh, there were a lot of years when he was uh, a decisive vote on some of the most controversial cases. Ted, how do you view Justice Kennedy and, and the legacy that he leaves behind? Well, very much like Professor Beck, uh, certainly since Justice O'Connor's Retirement in 2006, uh, Justice Kennedy has been at the center of the court in most of the key cases, uh, with a few exceptions uh, involving, for instance, the Affordable Care Act, uh, where Justice Roberts cast the key vote. But um, Justice Kennedy provided a a kind of centrist uh, ballast on the court that um, um, really has defined the court over the past uh, 10 or 20 years on some key issues like abortion and affirmative action and uh, gay rights, all of which he was uh, crucially important. And, and he was a very important piece in this most recent session and where you said that, you know, there was some 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 balancing that, that he would bring. A lot of the decisions in this one were, though, more so on the on the conservative side during this this last session. Yeah, I think that's right. This was not um, in, in some ways, then this was not the perhaps the paradigmatic Kennedy term, because he, uh, if we look at his whole career, he cast the deciding vote in a lot of five to four cases on both conservative direction and liberal direction. He very much was a uh, the median justice in that way. But, but the key cases this term that were decided robustly did tend to go in a conservative direction. Randy? Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to note that Chief Justice Roberts was actually the swing justice uh, more often maybe than Justice Kennedy this term. Uh, there were no cases in which Justice Kennedy aligned with the more liberal justices to create a majority, but there were a couple of cases where Chief Justice Roberts did that. 
844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Uh, we're talking about the uh, the most recent session by the Supreme Court, 844-942-7866, if you'd like to join in. So in terms of all of these these rulings that came down from the court, are there one or two that really stick out? I, a lot of people do have it, depending on the on the, the issues that you follow. But are there one or two that really stick out for you, Ted? Well, I think I would say I'd answer that in a couple of ways. The one that sticks out the most just for its importance to the nation and our discourse is probably Trump versus Hawaii, the, yeah. uh, where the court, um, unlike the two federal circuit courts who had ruled on this, uh, they, the court essentially reversed those courts and upheld the Trump travel ban, um, which, you know, kind of. Uh, hits at a real pressure point in our uh, in our political discourse and and uh, uh, legal cases as well. So that was that's an important case that's going to stand for the proposition, even when there's a Democrat in the White House in the years ahead, that the president has um, really wide uh, authority over determinations of who gets into the country and who doesn't. So it was a very robust statement for executive authority. The other thing I would say about the last few weeks of this term is kind of choices not made by the court, uh, okay. major issues that weren't settled. And I'll ma- name two. One was uh, the case, the, the fundamental question of whether religious business owners can essentially get exemptions from civil rights laws. Yeah. Um, the, the, that case, that, that big issue was presented to the court in the Masterpiece Cake Shop, the, the, the baker who wouldn't bake a cake for a same-sex couple. And the court decided on extremely narrow, almost one case at a time grounds based on some comments that were made at the individual hearing in Colorado. So it really is not law for the whole country, in my view. And so they took a very minimalist course there. Likewise, in a major case about political gerrymandering, uh, actually a pair of cases, one where a Democratic state legislature did it, one where a Republican state legislature, the court could have really used that case to get at something that a lot of us think needs to be addressed on a bipartisan basis namely the way legislatures are ruthlessly partisan and how they draw districts. And the court essentially decided that on very narrow standing grounds. So in some sense, I think this term might be remembered as much for the issues the court did not settle that are now going to come back to the court as much as for what it did. Randy, your thoughts? So Trump obviously was a significant decision on the travel ban, and they were pretty deferential to the executive branch, maybe even more than than I think they needed to be, given what the majority was concerned about. Um, one thing that was interesting to me is that three of the most closely watched cases were uh, presented to the court on compelled speech grounds. So Janus it had to do with agency fees for public employee unions, uh, Becerra, which was the case of the pro-life pregnancy centers out in California, and then the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that Ted was talking about. All three of those were cases where it was argued to the court that somebody was being compelled to take a position uh, that they did not agree with. Right. Um, and that probably reflects Justice Kennedy's central role, because he has been uh, very high on the First Amendment, and so it's not surprising to see every case uh, turned into a First Amendment case. I, I would agree that the First Amendment is our hardest working clause right now. Yeah. It's working overtime. Well, let me th- for the for the the case with the Colorado Bake Shop, I, I find it interesting that whether or not the justices would have made a, a further ruling if there had not been this issue that they brought up with the state civil rights commission. Do you think so? Well, I think they the, I mean the case was presented to them and I think yeah. they would have had to decide the bigger issue, but I what's clear when you, when we reverse engineer the ruling is they 
the the centrist majority led by Kennedy, presumably, and and perhaps Breyer, were, were really looking hard for what we would call a minimalist ground to yeah. decide it, to essentially punt the bigger issue and yeah. say this particular set of comments by these particular Colorado officials is going to decide the case here. We're not making law for the whole country. Randy? Yeah, I think there are a number of justices, uh, including Justice Kennedy, but uh, you know, including justices like Breyer and Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts, who would prefer to decide many cases on grounds that can develop a broader consensus. They'd much rather have a 7-2 opinion than a 5-4 to opinion. And so I think what you see in that case was uh, those justices looking for a way that they could reach a broader consensus. One of the cases we talked about recently here on the show uh, involved the Wayfair South Dakota case uh, with Internet sales tax and whether or not how you know how much of, a, of an impact there is going to be from that in the retail sector moving forward. It, it's an interesting because this has been a topic that has been much discussed for for several mm-hmm. years now, especially the last probably decade or so as as Internet retail has become such a more important mm-hmm. topic. So this is a fascinating case in which the court, by a very narrow and very unusual five to four majority, where Justice Ginsburg and Justice Roberts kind of flipped their traditional places, uh, the court said overruled a prior set of holdings and said that uh, internet retailers, even with no presence, physical presence in a state, um, might might be have to pay the same sales tax on par with in-state retailers. So this, ironically, you started the show about. Amazon's uh, major yeah. acquisition. This was a loss for Amazon and, and in some ways um, reflects, along with a couple of key Fourth Amendment cases, this might be, reflect the justices uh, kind of catching up with technology. So they, they noted right. the, the, the prevalence of online uh, retailing in this case. In two Fourth Amendment cases, they um, made it harder for the government to use cell phone, GPS data, yeah. and in another case, Facebook images. So it, 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 it seems to reflect a, a growing cognizance of technology and a recalibrating of our law to accommodate it. And, and it's interesting, Randy, because of the fact that seemingly if, if the Supreme Court kind of gets it to a degree that this is a very important area to, to really focus on, it feels like at the same time we see Congress not able to kind of figure out the elements of, of online and the importance of it. So it's actually, I think, a, a very important positive step forward for the country. Well, one thing this decision does is will put more pressure on Congress to come up with a kind of a national rule on collection of sales tax. Uh, you know, there there will be pressure to protect particularly the smaller businesses that engage in internet sales, so that they're not having to collect taxes on behalf of thirty or forty different states. But it is interesting, though, that that seemingly these businesses are going to be challenged. Randy, it feels like more than ever because of this. Yes, I think the the small businesses that don't have a lot of uh, administrative staff are going to find this very hard to to do business on the internet uh, unless they limit themselves to uh, to you know a handful of states where they can be on top of the tax legislation. Unions were also a, at a part of, of this term for the Supreme Court with the decision they made on whether or not people who don't join unions still have to pay fees if they're working in a union shop, basically, mm-hmm. and. and that I worked in a in this media industry in a union shop many years ago, and it was a topic thirty years ago, mm-hmm. and it's still a topic today. And it also comes at a time where union roles are lower than we've seen ever before. So it's a very interesting and important decision that the that the justices brought forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was this was a case called Janus, which uh, 
as you said, dealt with the with public sector unions and the question of whether somebody who's not a member of the union nonetheless ha- can be essentially charged a, a, fra- a portion of the, of the union dues for the union to advocate on behalf of all employees. Yeah. So there are good arguments on both sides. Um, on the one hand, as and the court ultimately ruled that it's compelling people to speak by virtue of their dues contributions, and the court held that in as uh, as Randy said, this was an expansion of the First Amendment. Uh, notion that uh, that compelled dues could be speech and and therefore impermissible. The flip side, though, is that non union employees then are kind of free riding on the contributions to subsidize yep. the union activity, which then benefits all employees. So there's a it it is a big blow to unions, and I think it's coupled with a different case where the court, uh, also led by Kennedy, uh, made it easier for employers to force. Uh, employees into mandatory binding arbitration. Yeah. Um, so this was a win for business and a loss for, for employees in a couple cases this term. Randy? So on Janus, I think it's important to remember that this was a public employee union, and the reasoning of the case, I think, would be limited to that context. I don't think it's yeah. going to significantly change the rules uh, for unions in the private sector. 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the areas with my sports background I followed, obviously, very closely, is the is the decision on sports betting, which obviously we're already seeing having an impact with the state of New Jersey. I mean, they had the framework basically ready to go, but the fact that, that it basically overturned what had been, what, 30 or 40 years ruling mm-hmm. on not allowing sports betting, only except in a couple of locations. Now it seems like we're kind of opening the door to see potentially 35, 40, 45 states at mm-hmm. some point down the road have sports betting in this country. I mean, that would be that seems to be the immediate implication. It remains to be seen whether Congress can t- can draft a better statute that that is more shows more fidelity to the state sovereignty concerns that the court based its ruling on. But yeah. this was a ruling grounded in kind of core federalism and state sovereignty powers. It happens to 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 be in the area of, of sports betting, and and so we're going to see a lot of state activity there, and maybe a response by Congress. Randy. Yeah, I, th- I think what's unique about this case is that it was the particular way Congress had drafted the statute that the court found problematic, where they were essentially giving instructions about what a state legislature could or could not do instead of simply uh, adopting a federal rule and preempting state law. So Congress, I think, could pass a different statute that would uh, that would shut off uh, betting in the states on, on sporting events. Um, whether they will do that, I don't know. Traditionally, it, when the court is making these rulings, how much do they focus on the state's ability to be able to manage a a lot of whatever the case may be? Do they focus on that a a good deal, or do they try and keep a balance on that? Well, federalism is a big value to uh, a number of the justices, and so it's certainly at play in, in many areas of the court's jurisprudence. Yeah, I I agree with that, and and I think I would... Add the notion that I think in a, for for the judges who who hold uh, federalism <clears throat> principles most dear, they tend not to do a kind of uh, cost balance, uh, cost benefit analysis of right. which which entity is more capable of regulating. Although Justice O'Connor was quite explicit about that in her federalism decisions. Um, conversely, some of the justices like Justice Breyer, who who often favor national and uniform regulatory schemes, often speaks quite directly about the kind of notion that that regulating nationally is is optimal and more uniform 
Um, so I think there's a bit of a, a methodological uh, parting of the ways on some of these federalism cases. Randy, uh, uh, Ted mentioned briefly before uh, about the, the case uh, involving uh, Epic Systems versus Lewis and the fact that seemingly now we are going to be looking at uh, workers not being able to come forward, if I read it correctly, not being able to come forward and have individual, or I should say, they're going to have to go individual instead of having uh, more group uh, uh, group decision going forward in terms of discrimination, whether it be on on pay or or working conditions. Yeah, um, I, again, it's an area where Congress could step in and regulate. I suspect, but. Um, Given the divided Congress, it, it seems unlikely that they would reach a consensus on, on an, a regulation in that area. Ted? I agree with that. Uh, so I think that this will be the, the state of play um, with respect to, to, to workplace arbitration agreements. Um, I, I think it's unlikely in the next two years that Congress will legislate. How, how impactful could this decision be? Thinking about other cases that you've seen and other instances that you've seen, this change, this move to to really force this type of uh, of negotiation of arbitration moving forward. It continues a trend you know, where um, this court, as well as state and federal law, have been relatively permissive toward these kind of arbitration agreements. So it's 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 one data point along a, a trend that I think makes it easier for employers to. Uh, to structure agreements that force, particularly um, employees without much bargaining power, those who aren't in unions, who yeah. aren't highly paid professionals, into um, into arbitration agreements that may be a, a, a disadvantageous forum. Randy, I agree with that. Yeah, I think the the court has been uh, favorably disposed towards arbitration agreements in a number of cases, and this is one more on that line. Uh, the question has been brought up, Randy, of whether or not this court, uh, or maybe to a degree, some of the justices on this court are leaning more towards favoring the business side than they are the individual side. Do you see that as 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 a as maybe a possibility that's going on here right now? I I doubt that that's going on uh, in any uh, conscious way. I think they take one case at a time and decide them based upon the statutes or the constitutional provisions at issue. And and uh, I I doubt that there are any justices who are thinking to themselves, I really uh, want to yeah. favor business or I want to favor employers. So it's just playing out that way, basically. Yeah. Exactly. Ted? I agree with every part of that statement, that there's no uh, supervening intent, but it's been playing out that way even back toward the Rehnquist court into the Roberts court that, uh, uh, and that's true of even some of the Democrat appointed justices. This has been a rel- relatively more friendly court to business than, say, the Warren court was. Yeah. Ted mentioned uh, the things that maybe caught him by surprise. Randy, were the things that, that caught you by surprise through this session? Uh, Justice Kennedy retiring was one of them. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I, there weren't, any cases that I thought of as huge surprises. Um, You know, I think Trump versus uh, Hawaii, five to four, I think it could have gone five to four the other way. And uh, I think the majority was worried about putting courts in a position where they were second guessing uh, national security decisions by the executive branch. But the president's comments in this case were uh, unusual. uh, And so I think you could have drafted an opinion that would have come out against the travel ban and yet uh, left courts without uh, the opportunity to intervene in a lot of national security decision-making. I I agree with that. And there is an interesting, uh, to the point about President Trump's very pointed 
anti-Muslim comments. Yeah. Uh, there's an interesting uh, disjuncture between the Colorado Masterpiece Bakery case, where in that case you had a, a facially somewhat you know neutral statute that the court invalidated or commission order that the um, or commission action that the court invalidated based on statements made orally in the commission hearing. Uh, whereas with the the travel ban, you had a, as the court said, a facially permissible statute, but then was backed up by really anti-Muslim rhetoric from the president. Yeah. And uh, in the the travel ban case, for reasons I think Randy said, they didn't, they weren't willing to use the rhetoric to invalidate the uh, the law the way they were in the masterpiece bakery case. In, in the in the Trump Hawaii case, Randy, would Justice Kenny have been that that potential swing vote? Do you think? I think he could have, or I think Chief Justice Roberts also would have been a plausible person to to go the other way in the case. 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. What do you think then, Randy, the the impact of, of that specific case obviously is... It's been a an unbelievably important talking point by a lot of people. But what do you think is going to be the impact of that case moving forward? And uh, it's obviously not a, a dead issue in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I think the broader message is that the executive branch and the president have a lot of authority over immigration policy. And uh, I suspect that that is an emphasis that could affect uh, decisions in other cases as well. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six again, or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The case going back, I wanted to step back for a second and go back to the Colorado case for a second. That drew so much attention as it was playing out. And it is such a, a, a I think it's an area where a lot of people still feel that there is a duty by the business to serve the customer on, on whatever shape or form it is. Taking in the fact of religion as part of this discussion, we go back to uh, Hobby Lobby as well. How important is that element of religion going to continue to be, it feels like, in all of these types of decisions, whether it be at the Supreme Court, Ted, or whether it be at the lower courts as well? It's going to continue to be very important, and uh, this seems to be an issue that is arising more frequently as we simultaneously have an increase in general regulatory non-discrimination type statutes um, at the state level as well, and municipal level, as well as a real robust uh, assertion of religious uh, belief and uh, the belief even by corporations like Hobby Lobby or individual commercial operators like the Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop. Um, there's... And the court did not settle that issue, so it's going yeah. to keep coming up. Now, there's, I think I can, I'd be interested in Randy's views. You can, one can read some of the things Justice Kennedy said in the masterpiece decision about uh, religion, religious adherence in commerce, yielding to generally applicable laws when there's no animus, right? To suggest that if the commission had done it right, at least he might have voted to to uphold the Colorado law. But of course, that's both dicta now and also a moot point now that Kennedy's retired. Randy? Yeah, this is such an interesting case for Justice Kennedy's last term because it was kind of at the intersection of two things that really matter to him. Uh, you know, he's been the author of the principal gay rights cases uh, in recent terms, uh, but he also is somebody who cares very much about freedom of expression, freedom of conscience. Um, you mentioned the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, he had talked a lot about 
human dignity and as a concurring opinion in that case uh, as central to uh, the the rights of religious believers, just as he's talked about human dignity in the gay rights cases as central to the rights of gays and lesbians. And so this was a case where um, two things that mattered to him seemed to come into some tension with each other. So uh, it's not surprising to me that he looked for a way to resolve the case that did not hand a complete victory to one side or the other. Uh, and I think that's kind of characteristic of Justice Kennedy. He tended to be a statesman, uh, a peacemaker. Uh, he often recognized in the controversial cases that um, there were important interests at stake on both sides of the case. Right. Uh, and so the ability of gays and lesbians to participate in the economy on one side, but here the the ability of believers to do what they believe God is calling them to do, that's also an important interest in his decisions. And so uh, I just thought it was a very interesting case for him to decide in his last term. Well, I find it likewise interesting and also quite consistent by Justice Kennedy in this notion of um, – hinging on specific targeted animus as the linchpin to invalidate a perhaps otherwise valid law. It calls to mind actually another Colorado case from 15 or more years ago, Romer versus Evans, where Justice Kennedy invalidated an anti-gay referendum because of some of the statements that were made during the campaign about gays. Yeah. And then a religious freedom case uh, where he struck down a, an, a, a law that um, was facially neutral in Hylia, Florida, that prevented the Santiero religion from practicing, where he, very much like this this masterpiece case, he cited uh, individual statements made at the town council meeting that he found were uh, anti-Santiero as, as the grounds for, for striking this down as imbued with animus. So he really, he really cares deeply, not just about the text of a law, but yeah. about... Uh, whether the, the the construction of the law was imbued with some animus against a group. It's interesting, Randy, you mentioned earlier about the fact that, that uh, Justice Kennedy is viewed by a lot of people as this swing judge on the uh, on the on the Supreme Court. And I read a, a, an article yesterday that talked about and you can confirm this or not, that, that he didn't really like that term of, of swing judge or swing justice. Well, actually, yeah, I think I saw that quote. He said that uh, he didn't swing. He said the case is swung. So right. He, he thought he was being consistent, and just uh, the randomness of certain cases arising in certain terms would make it appear that he was he was swinging back and forth. But he was just deciding each case as it came before him. But that that's truly what you would what you expect to see from a justice is to is to be able to see both sides of the argument and be able to make what hopefully is a, a fair and equitable decision. Correct. Yeah, I, th- I think one thing that was true of Justice Kennedy is he did not have a strong commitment to any particular method of constitutional interpretation. Um, he uh, wasn't like Justice Scalia, who was a textualist and an originalist. Um, and so uh, that meant that the cases were coming to him more on a case-by-case basis, and there were more factors, including prior precedent, that, that played a bigger role in his decision-making. And so that made it possible for him to come down uh, on either side of, of some of the cases that came before the court. Ted? Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, what we see, what we can predict, it's interesting, um, with with him leaving and being replaced by a President Trump appointee, I think we can kind of do a little bit of jurisprudential game theory and, and surmise that whoever the new appointee is um, probably will be to the jurisprudential right on some key cases sure. of, to John Roberts, which essentially puts then the chief justice in that that, me, that median position, which does move the court incrementally to the right. But 
one one interesting thing about the court through the years, of course, it, there's no guarantee that the other justices, including perhaps most importantly the chief justice, will remain static jurisprudentially themselves. So there's some empirical uh, studies that suggest particularly the chief justices tend to moderate over time because they have the highest uh, vested interest in the court's prestige publicly, so they don't want the court to seem too political. So particularly now that he's in the median role, um, I think it, we may see some surprises from Chief Justice Roberts where he doesn't vote in ways that some might predict, and he may vote in a more centrist way. Randy, you agree? Yeah. I mean, well, one point from SCOTUS blog statistics, uh, Justice Kennedy and Chief Justice Roberts uh, voted the same way in 90 percent of the cases already. So there, there's a lot, uh, you know, a lot of similarity between the two. But one thing I think is true about Chief Justice Roberts is that he is an institutionalist who cares very much about the influence of the court. And as you saw, for instance, in the Affordable Care Act case, Obamacare, um, I think he is going to try to avoid situations where the court seems too partisan or too extreme. So that could moderate his decision-making over time. Were we in a situation this spring with with these sessions where we had that possibility of having either a moderate or you know opposite side uh, on some of these decisions? Was that possibly set up in a couple of these cases, Randy? Um, uh, well, so I mentioned earlier that Chief Justice Roberts actually was in a five-to-four majority with the more liberal justices That's on right. a couple yeah. of cases. Yeah. Uh, one of them, Carpenter, was one of the cell phone cases about whether you could track somebody using cell phone data. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I would expect to see more of those sorts of cases, but even more, I'd expect to see him working hard to produce consensus and uh, trying to get the, the court to seven to two decisions instead of five to four. And obviously, it seems like, just playing off of something Randy said, Ted, that we will see and I don't know at what frequency, more of these cases that deal with some element of technology and the use of it and how far we can go with it in the, in the years to come because of how prevalent it is in our business world, in our personal lives, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's clearly the cases will will arise given the prevalence of technology. And I think what, what this term's results show is that these justices, despite uh, being, you know, um, on the court with life tenure kind of in many ways insulated from technology is that they, they are willing to, uh, in the Fourth Amendment area, in some of the commercial areas, take cognizance of the way technology is changing our lives. How do you expect this, these next few months to play out? Because it is obviously, it's very much a political question, but from a, from a legal side, how do you see these next few months playing out in terms of, uh, of, of nominating and, and getting that ninth justice onto the court? Well, it, in some ways, it's going to be less interesting than it might have been a decade or two ago because of the way the Senate rules and practices have changed. Uh, they don't need to get to 60 votes to defeat the filibuster under yeah. the, the, the the way Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans are handling it. So what we'll see is a lot of speculation over the next uh, month or so over who the next nominee will be. Um, and then we'll see a lot of intensity in the nomination hearings. But I don't think the... Um, Unless the unless the White House really whiffs on the selection, I don't think the confirmation is is in serious doubt. Randy, so uh, President Trump gave us a list of twenty five judges, and he indicated yesterday that he would nominate somebody from that list. Um, it includes a couple of people we're interested in down here in Georgia, members of our state Supreme Court, but uh, a variety of other people from around the country. And uh, so I would expect him to bring somebody from that list of twenty five. Um, 
the thing that could affect the process is that he's got to make sure he keeps uh, all of the Republican senators or maybe could lose one Republican senator. But if he picks a nominee that is going to to uh, drive away more than one Republican senator, then he's got a problem unless he can get some Democratic senators to, to vote for the, the candidate. So I think he's going to be negotiating with Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski to yeah. see which of the people on that list of 25 they could live with. Randy, thank you very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming over. Thanks very much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.